I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. Megan Day, Natalie Schur, and Alyssa Court reflect on the toxicity and banality of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation to the Supreme Court. We now have the least popular Supreme Court nominee in memory, appointed by the most unpopular and corrupt U.S. president in modern history, finally confirmed by a Senate that is one of the least representative bodies in any more or less democratic country in the world. We look at the way the contentious emotional hearings exposed the fault lines between gender, privilege, class, and politics in the U.S. And we also look at why the Democrats have been so meek, diffident, and ineffective in the face of the Republican Party's disciplined march to impose the future by getting an extreme right-wing bloc on the Supreme Court, violating every norm to get there, and what that means for the fight back. Megan Day's latest article in Jacobin looks at just how ordinary Brett Kavanaugh is, juvenile, arrogant, sexist, an unremarkable guy who was born on a conveyor belt to power without much obligation to distinguish himself from his peers. His banality is but another data point, she says, in the collapse of the illusion of meritocracy, now clustering with other points that show the legitimacy of the ruling elite is evaporating faster than ever before. Shattered illusions are a good beginning, but will do nothing without organizing to win and change the system that fast-tracks the elites into the halls of power. And then Natalie Schur looks at the Federalist Society and their influence and politics that go beyond gender justice to the very defining characteristics of Kavanaugh's ideology and the political movement then groomed him. And finally, Alyssa Court, author of Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, writes about class privilege and the women who are invisible to Kavanaugh and his class. Christine Blasey Ford is, in this view, a traitor to her class, and so she was heard, whereas Debbie Ramirez and Julie Swetnick and thousands of other women workers are not. All this coming up on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Well, we now have the least popular Supreme Court nominee in memory, appointed by the most unpopular and corrupt U.S. president in modern history, finally confirmed by a Senate that is one of the least representative bodies in any more or less democratic country in the world. So we're going to ask Megan Day all about the fight back and where we go from here. Megan, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Hi, Susie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. And I should say Megan's a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. Her work has also appeared in many other places from the New York Times, Vox, Mother Jones, The Baffler, In These Times, N Plus One, and I'm sure many other places. Her nonfiction book, Maximum Sunlight, was excerpted in the Best American Non-Required Reading for 2017. So hold on, Megan. I'm just going to set this up because there's so much. The forces of the far right have grown in intensity and ruthlessness. There's no question about that. The Trump Tea Party Republicans are but the culmination of what we see as a long game power play that's undoing all of the great social compacts of the 20th century. And it's been overlooked by the Democrats who have seemed meek in the face of this onslaught and certainly lacking of any conviction. Now, you and I were both at demonstrations that were depressingly small in different cities on Thursday night after the fix 
was in. So I do want to touch on that. But first, just to say, the Democratic Party, as I said, has been meek. It's been passive. It's avoided conflict. It's been vacillating. And you get on the other side, the Republicans voting in lockstep with Stalinist discipline. Their aim, the Republicans, has been to dictate the future of the country through a voting block on the Supreme Court. And they violated every norm to get there. They refused to allow Merrick Garland a hearing as they were constitutionally obliged to do. And the Democrats acquiesced timidly and didn't make a stink to force public attention. They did not generate pressure on the two to three Republicans who could have been weaned from that slavish obedience to those who provide money and electoral endorsement. And then we get Kavanaugh, who turns out to be not just extreme on abortion, but has this stunning record of sexual assault. And he was a belligerent drunk. He cracks up before the Senate Judiciary Committee and his performance, which should have gotten him forced out, rewarded him. So really, I wanted to just begin with where were the Democrats? They seemed Feinstein, Klobuchar and the others. Once they realized the FBI investigation was a sham, kind of wrung their hands and hid behind Flake's fig leaves. This gives a whole new sort of, uh, I guess, definition to spinelessness. Can we start there, Megan? What's your thought on all of that? Right. So where were the Democrats? Yeah. Uh, the Democrats were um, the Democrats were insistent on an FBI investigation as a panacea, uh, a fix-all. You know, this is not necessarily a surprise. We've seen this before. The idea that once we have a legitimate body investigating this, they'll get to the bottom of it and things will be set right. Ultimately, the problem here is that there's an allergy to politics <laughs> in this. So, um, you know, one of the most powerful protests that I saw during this whole Kavanaugh confirmation process was in West Virginia. Um, one of the one of the teachers who led actually the West Virginia teacher strike, her name is Emily Comer, uh, marched into Joe Manchin's office and sat down with him and said, you don't need an FBI investigation to tell you to vote no on Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh has a horrifying opinion and stance on abortion. He has a a long record of ruling against working people and in favor of corporations. This man is a class enemy. He's an enemy to women. And you should vote no without an FBI investigation. And of course, Joe Manchin said something to the effect of, well, we'll just see what the investigation has to say, little messy, right? (laughs) So uh, unfortunately, the investigation was was nothing. And you saw this even from even from Democrats who were a little more full throated in their opposition, of course, their sort of opposition to Brett Kavanaugh's probable sexual assault, like Kamala Harris, still the kind of reflexive turn toward, well, we will have an FBI investigation, and then we'll get to the bottom of all of this, and it'll all be sorted out. What the Democrats should have been doing, not that I necessarily have a lot of faith that the Democrats, as they're currently constituted, would ever do such a thing, is arguing and fighting on the basis that Brett Kavanaugh, if he were appointed to the Supreme Court, and not just because of what he probably did to Christine Blasey Ford and other women, but on the basis of his politics alone, would be bad for millions and millions of ordinary people in America. And they should have been fighting like hell from the very beginning. Well, that's they were resorting to these sorts of procedural kind of apolitical means. Well, I mean, I think this is exactly right, Megan. And they certainly, you know, were outflanked. Even during the hearings themselves, they, you know, seemed to be confused when Kavanaugh 
Kavanaugh would use up their time, throw questions back, and they'd say, is that your answer? But, you know, where was this sort of group standing up, walking out and saying, this is a sham, Americans don't listen to this, or something like that? You know, mobilizing people, exactly what you're saying. And I saw in a picture, I think it's on Facebook, that you had a sign at that demonstration saying, Kavanaugh, bad for women, bad for workers. And you've just talked about how uh, in West Virginia, the most significant thing was to see the teachers who went on strike leading this and talking about how bad he really is going to be. So I just want to go back because after this wrenching week, I felt so exhausted. I needed to do something completely different just to kind of cleanse myself of it. And I'm sure many people did. But I went, you know, to the demonstration. I had a hard time finding information about it, and it was depressingly small. So, you know, where where was labor, unions, all the other sort of forces that normally mobilize for a demonstration? Maybe they felt it was, you know, a weeknight and they have need time for it. I mean, what was your impression when you went to the same, I guess, demonstration? Was it in Oakland or, you know, in the, in the East Bay? Yeah, it was actually in San Francisco. In San Francisco. So uh, I should say that from what I understand, the demonstration, I think the day prior or maybe the day before that in New York City was apparently very large and yeah. it was great. And so in I, D.C. I too, we should say that. Yeah. And in D.C. Yeah. So and, you know, in other places you would expect maybe for the demonstrations to be similarly large and similarly effective. I hear that in L.A., like you said, it wasn't really um but I also think that this is, you know, where I was. Uh, I went to a rally beforehand, and it was pretty. It was pretty small. Um, I, I, it appears that the demonstration uh, got somewhat larger after I left. I do have some reflections on the protests, if you'll permit me to sort of mm-hmm. speak a little bit sure. about, about where the left should go from here. So I felt at the protests that I attended, as I often do, that. Um, we were at our most effective, we in the crowd, when the demand was cancel Kavanaugh's confirmation rather than, you know, the abstract demand, which, of, of course, all of us are, you know, fully emotionally committed to and politically committed to the abstract demand of end sexual violence. So I thought that the most effective protests throughout the country were the ones where I saw people, ordinary people, mobbing specific legislators and baring their teeth a bit and demanding that their representatives, you know, vote a certain way or else. And I think that in general, you have to examine the political situation. And when you're not in like a revolutionary situation, when your forces are somewhat weak, your enemies have a pretty solid grip on power. I think protests are most effective when they're intended not to give your people an opportunity to vent their anger and despair at injustice, but to teach them how to fight. And I think that specific demands for specific reforms or specific outcomes is a better way to do that right now. And of course, we want to end sexual violence. But this is an abstract demand and one that pretty much any politician can say that they agree with, right, without any consequences, including not, not just Democrats, who, as we as we right. said, were relatively absent, but also Republicans who voted to confirm Kavanaugh. They can say that they want to end sexual violence, right? So, right. Um, like I said, I told you I, I'd like to speechify a little bit. So if it's okay, I'll, I'll keep going and I'll bring in another source. Yeah, I'm sure. A lot about this question. I'm looking forward to uh, talking about it. So, so Peter Camejo. He's mm-hmm. a socialist organizer of the late 20th century. <laughs> I have Warren, to tell you, a little yeah, a little yeah. aside was that was one of the very first meetings I went to. Oh, so really? many years ago when Peter Cameo was speaking how to make a revolution in the United States. And he literally, Incredible. yeah, in the 60s. <laughs> Go ahead. 
Amazing, right? So, so exactly. So, this was this was his deal. His he was an analyst of how to make a revolution, right? That was like part of his. So, in the sixties, actually, he warned against you know what he called a liberal orientation to power, and he was giving a speech to the youth wing, I think, of the Socialist Workers Party, and he said, you know, since liberals have confidence that the system basically works, the only problem is to find members of the ruling class who are responsive and get them into power. You know, liberals are are continuously looking for the more liberal wing within the ruling class to support, to throw their support behind. And they don't really see, as Kameho said, that the way to change society or affect the course of events is to go to the masses. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So this is obviously a very, very socialist approach. The socialist approach to political change is, is not to rely on the largesse of the political elite, but to organize ordinary people to exert power from below. The attitude, basically, you can sum it up as like, elites' hearts don't matter. As I wrote, you know, in my screed against Brett Kavanaugh and his um, really well written, I have to say, ordinariness. Thank yeah. you, I appreciate it. <laughs> so yeah. it doesn't matter what's in elite's hearts. What matters is our muscles, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Kameho warns in the same essay against the radical leftist tendency to rely on abstract demands, which he says is basically liberal in orientation, even though radicals don't really realize it. So he says, you know. I have a quote here. If if you have a program of a lot of reforms and abstractions, it means that you can go right back to the liberal wing of the ruling class because that is what their program is also. You can go right back to Senator Ted Kennedy, who can get up, as he did in his speech, accepting the Democratic Party nomination for Massachusetts senator and come out against racism, repression, poverty and many other things, you know, end quote. But, you know, specific demands are different. Politicians can't weasel out of them so easily, and even though I think they seem less grandiose and therefore they seem somehow reduced to us, they actually up the stakes, right? So specific demands might include cancel Kavanaugh's appointment or stop women's clinic closures in Texas or, you know, universal child care now or maybe uh, more public funding for more sexual trauma counselors at public universities or maybe single-payer health care that covers abortion, right? And abstract demands let you vent your frustration and you go home with the assurance that some politicians, you know, the good ones like Kamala Harris, right? They're listening. They reflect back your values to you and they have vowed to take care of it. But, you know, specific demands are different. They're, they're, they're calibrated not to persuade politicians, but to surface and give coherent shape to pre-existing conflict. And this is the heart of the socialist approach to struggle that Kameho was advocating. Conflict is inevitable because people in a stratified society have competing interests. The point is to build up our forces and to fight back in that conflict more effectively. So specific reforms are fights, not pleas. They're about our power, not politicians' consciences. So this is the I'm winding around to my ultimate point about the Kavanaugh protests. I think that they've been, you know, some of them have been enormous and apparently very powerful. Some of them have been small and it's had demoralizing and then they've, they've run the gamut. I think that no matter what, they contain the possibility of a strategic socialist orientation to struggle. But the left has a choice to make, too. Is it going to plead with elites or is it going to harness the energy of this moment and fight? Right. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, totally. So I, let me just tell the listeners that I'm speaking with Megan Day, and she's a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. And I wanted her to come on the program because she has an excellent piece on Jacobin uh, online, which is called The Monality of Brett Kavanaugh. And she wrote that before the confirmation went through, but it really kind of exposes just how very, you know, banal, bland that Brett Kavanaugh actually is. And now, of course, we've taken it much further. And I think that you've hit on something, but the other thing thing about this, Megan, is that it's absolutely right that the Democrats have shown themselves, I used to call them invertebrates, and you can't, you know, until they get a spine, we would say, you know, you can't depend on them for anything. But it's not that. It's because they actually represent a different politics. That they, and that's really quite obvious that they are trying to be the sort of human face of this very unhuman, let's say, politics of neoliberalism. But then let's look just a little bit deeper, because I was going to ask you, you know, why is it that, you know, the Republicans behave in a, uh, as a disciplined party, they go after their long-term strategy, and the, and the Democrats are all over the place. But on the other hand, it's because they don't really stand for anything very much different. They do stand for, of course, you know, not Uh, making the court into, you know, undoing every single advance of the 20th century. But they, but, you know, as you just said, you know, we're now seeing uh, the resurgence of the strike as a weapon. And it is the strike that actually won teachers, you know, raises and their salary and brought public attention and support to them. Okay, this is a very long way of saying, but there is this whole, uh, you know, we're a very polarized society, and it's not just here. There's elections in Brazil today that are reflecting some of these very same differences. A lot of people who've been left behind by the Democrats and by their politics are now, they're listening to this populist strategy and giving it a go. And, you know, you asked the question, I think, why when you interviewed Jedediah Purdy, says, what's the, what's the reason that the Republicans stuck with this incredibly flawed candidate? He was, you know, not very credible. He was untrustworthy. So is it because they were also so angry with the Me Too movement or with any form of protest? I want to take it back just to that before we get into sort of the larger organizing question. I think it's because the Republicans have an actual political movement that's steering their party. So the Republicans are the right. Mm -hmm. Democrats are the center. The left has no power in American political, mainstream political society. You know, we see Bernie Sanders is extremely popular, demonstrating that there's a base for left political power. But he's obviously alone in his message of economic redistribution, uh, in his message of Medicare for all, free college for all. Some, you know, Democrats are attempting to you know, uh, mimic him in order to tap into that base. But there's not a left political movement driving the Democratic Party. By contrast, there is on the right, there is a strong movement. It was the origins of right leaning ideology go back, you know, centuries, but certainly gaining traction in the 1980s and then to the present day. And you see that the Federalist Society has been grooming, they've been grooming people like Kavanaugh for roles such as these, this one being the sort of archer or role, um, for a very long time. And the reason they've been doing that is because they're ideologues. They have they have a specific political agenda that they would very much like to implement. By contrast, Democrats don't have any such thing. Um, there are different little strains. 
um, that sometimes pop up here and there in the Democratic Party. But there's not a sort of like cluster of, you know, left wing, very committed or passionate or even zealous, you know, movementists who are, you know, planning for the long term to see their political vision realized. What there are instead are career politicians who are attempting to get reelected. And they're simulating the operations of a political party when, in fact, they are an organization of careerists with a mutually beneficial relationship to to each other and to the donor class. So, you know, the Republicans, they're fighting for something. And Democrats, when you don't have something to fight for, you don't tend to organize yourself very well for a fight. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I wanted to go ask you one more thing uh, about this whole process, because it's true. Everything that you say is true. And I've always thought that the Democrats should rename themselves as the Liberal Party and allow for some form of social democratic labor party like all the rest of the advanced and some of the not so advanced uh, capitalist world has. But on the other hand, um, we now have because of this process, The Supreme Court that has been, many people are saying, delegitimized, um, that it's openly partisan, that, you know, it's always been that way. People who have looked back in history know that that's the case, but now it's bald and open for everyone to see. And it's very, very difficult, despite, you know, Kavanaugh's uh, Wall Street uh, Journal op-ed where he said, I'm going to be nonpartisan and I, you know, was just angry, but literally I will be impartial. And no one, you know, actually believes that. But now you've also got, you know, uh, somehow because of the Mueller investigation, the FBI was sort of, which, you know, nobody likes the FBI, but then all of a sudden people were relying on it. And now after this investigation, it's also been thrown Let's say it's suffered a, a big you know, drop in its esteem by the population. So we're in a situation now where most people don't have real representation. That's absolutely the case. But now we also have most of the institutions completely discredited. So I don't know if we should turn this into a, a discussion of strategy, but it seems like not a bad idea to talk about what to do now besides mobilizing and striking. The people who voted for Trump can certainly be one to the other side. I've always believed that. So I want to hear what you have to think. Right. So the crisis of legitimacy, this is a continuum. So the Supreme Court is experiencing a crisis of legitimacy because of the way that the Kavanaugh confirmation process has rolled out and the fact that he's the most unpopular person who's ever been floated to the Supreme Court, like maybe ever. I don't know, certainly in in living memory. Mm -hmm. Um, And the FBI, too, experiencing a small crisis of legitimacy, though it remains to be seen, because if the (laughs) Democrats continue to rely on the FBI to fight their battles for them instead of fighting themselves as one of the two major political parties in the United States, you know, obviously tasked with doing politics, then maybe they will resuscitate the the, uh, reputation of the FBI and maybe people will fall for it once again. But these are part of a continuum of a broader crisis of legitimacy. So I I wrote in my essay, The Banality of Brett Kavanaugh, that I think what's really happening is that there's a collapse of the fantasy of meritocracy. The idea that if somebody is up at the highest echelons of power in our society, that that is proof that they have some sort of superior hardwiring, they have some special insight uh, that actually, you know, guarantees them the right to be there, right? It's extremely tautological. We know they're up there because 
they had the, you know, something special that got them, got them climbing all the way up the ladder. And we know that people can climb all the way up the ladder because look at all these eminent people at the, at the top of the ladder and how eminent they are, right? right? So this has been collapsing for a long time because the, the flip side of it is that, you know, meritocracy is an ideology that reinforces capitalism. It basically says the people at the top deserve to be there because anybody can get to the top if they work hard enough. But the flip side is that you, if you're at the bottom, that means you didn't have what it takes or you didn't work hard enough to get to the top. And that worked for a while, but honestly, so many people are at the bottom now that I think people are growing a little resentful and they're growing a little disillusioned with the idea of meritocracy. People know they work hard. People know they deserve good things. Um, the social safety net is fraying. Uh, the jobs are, are not, the opportunities are not presenting themselves. And I think that people's, you know, belief in meritocracy is wearing thin. I think that Trump is actually a phenomenon that um, speaks to a sort of almost like a nihilistic response to that. I so, think like, that's true. People know that meritocracy is kind of a sham. And so some people are like, well, let's, you know, let's pick someone who's a complete outsider. I'm tired of all this Ivy League, you know, these, uh, these Ivy League blue bloods, like, you know, r- running the show and telling me that the reason I don't run the show and can't even, you know, get a decent foothold is because I... Uh, you know, am inferior or whatever, like, screw that, I'm going with the outsider. Of course, he's not an outsider, but people have a pretty low level of class consciousness, so they're not thinking about the fact that, you know, a billionaire can never really be an outsider. He's a political outsider. So that's the nihilistic response. But there's a there's another potential response, which is personified in Bernie Sanders, which is that people are rejecting this idea, this this meritocratic idea that obviously, you know, Hillary Clinton is at the top because she deserves to be at the top and it's her turn and she has the experience and you can tell that she has the experience because she's been at the top for a while and the reason she's been there is because she deserves to be there, which we know because she's there, (laughs) right? People are waving that away and they're interested in something else. They're interested in, you know, in a politics of, of economic redistribution and in a politics of giving ordinary people opportunities and spreading around prosperity in our society. So we're looking at two divergent paths here. If there is, in fact, a crisis of legitimacy in the dominant institutions, whether they, that, that's the Supreme Court or, or whether that's, you know, the Ivy League and the pipeline between the Ivy League and, the, and uh, the halls of political power, then there are two directions that we can go in. Um, one of them is class conscious and the other one is not. I think that's actually what it comes down to. Okay, and so then let's just take that back to the moment, and and we'll have to end with this, Megan Day, and that is that, you know, many people think that the result of this is there's going to be a tremendous blue wave in the midterms. Others are saying that the conservatives are just as animated by what has happened, again, reflecting how polarized the country is. You've just talked about this chipping away at the meritocracy in most people's views. I think that's absolutely right, but now I think that what we got in Trump, of course, is kind of a con man, you know, who comes from the elite but doesn't represent the sort of straight blue blood normal variant of it. And that's being discredited, too, as people's living standards continue to fray, despite all of the boosterism from those who say that the economy is growing like no- like nothing before. And we're living in a society, and we don't have time to do this. You know, it's these aren't the only issues. The climate change is, is drastic. We're in wars that are, you know, that are 
abominable immigrant children are in tent concentration camps along the border. And there's so many different things that are crying out for people to discuss and mobilize on. So just, I guess, to end uh, this portion of our interview, what, you know, do you think should happen in this period? We've got this system that's rigged. And we right. do, and even though we have a Bernie Sanders and it's shown, you know, that there's it's revealed the strength of the left in this country, which is quite large, but it's large without a voice, you know, in the halls of power. So how do you see that working out in terms of midterms, elections? Oh, and I wanted to say one last thing. You know, the ruling class candidate on the Democratic side looked like it was going to be Biden. I think he's discredited now after his role in the Anita Hill hearings. I don't know what you think about that. So I want to go back to this question of what's going to happen in the mm-hmm. midterms, blue wave or red wave. Right. Um, I'm going to guess both with little statistical change. So basically the thing is that th- this is the issue. People who – there are millions of people in this country who don't know what's going on with Kavanaugh. It's like I remember when I was younger and I, I came late to the Iraq war stuff because I was I was just too young to catch the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. Um and it all seemed a bit complicated. I think that's how a lot of people feel. If you're not tuned into politics, you don't want to jump in in the middle of the story. It all seems too complicated. There are names you don't know. There's structures you're not familiar with. And if you don't feel personally invested because you don't necessarily think you're going to get anything in return for that investment, then there's not a lot of impetus to like catch up on, on stuff, right? Some people catch the bug, but a lot of people don't. So I think that the people who are going to go out and vote in the midterms are probably going to be the, the people who were voting last midterms and in a little general, you know, presidential election and so on and so forth. These are the these are the people who vote. I don't think we're going to see a difference in, you know, in turnout. They may go angrier. The Republicans may go to the polls angrier than they were last time they voted, and the, and the Democrats may do the same. But you're not going to see a real statistical change until you start to develop and build and build an organizational form for a politics that appeals to those millions and millions and millions of people who do not feel who feel alienated by this political, this ongoing political story, who don't really feel like they can even jump in this stream because it's not they don't, they're not sure they can swim and they're not and they're pretty sure they might drown if they jump in. Right. Okay. Like it's not, you know, it's not for them. and It's possibly it's possibly dangerous to allow yourself with, you know, the people who are who are extremely invested in politics. So so we need to build a different kind of politics that actually brings people, ordinary people, into the political process. And that's what Bernie Sanders has demonstrated is possible. But you're right. There's not an organizational form for it yet. There's basically one extremely popular activist senator who is almost single-handedly creating a sort of, as he calls it, a political revolution. People are catching up. There are new, you know, there's our revolution, um, and then there's DSA, and then, which is Democratic Socialists of America, and there are candidates who are are showing up to sort of take, take that mantle and run with it, but there's not an organizational structure yet, and that's what needs to happen next, is we need to organize. Exactly. I want to leave it there because we've run out of time. But what a pleasure, Megan Day. I want to have you back. I want to let the listeners know you should read her at Jacobin Magazine. She's a staff writer. Her latest piece there, or one of her latest pieces, is The Banality of Brett Kavanaugh. Megan Day, thank you so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Susie, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much.
I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. Up next, we speak to Natalie Shore and Alyssa Court, and both these interviews were recorded before the final confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. But as you'll see, they are as pertinent today as when they were recorded. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm really pleased to have Natalie Schur with me here for the very first time. She's a very impressive speaker and knows of what she speaks. We're talking to her in Los Angeles. She's the head of research for Adam Ruins Everything that appears on True TV and producer and writer whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, Slate, Time Out New York, a lot of other places, especially in Jacobin Magazine. And that's where she came to my attention just most recently with an article that appeared on Jacobin online called Kavanaugh Hates Women. Well, I think most of us got a real taste of that in the September 27th hearing for his confirmation to the Supreme Court. We saw the amazingly compelling, raw, honest, cooperative, I'm going to say, testimony of Christine Blasey Ford. And then we saw the rant, the petulance and the anger entitled you know, bullying that we got from Brett Kavanaugh. And it was really quite jarring altogether. And and I do want to talk to you about that and also about his background as part of the Federalist Society and what it is that they are putting forward for this country. It was just absolutely mind-blowing and grotesque. And of course, it was, you know, I just want to say further that he wasn't just a youthful, sloppy drunk and a jock and an entitled abuser of young women, and that he, you know, fibbed or lied repeatedly and was not called out by it in the hearing, even though he was under oath. But there's more to his background that we should go into. So with all of that, Natalie, sure, let's hear your first impressions. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I I wrote the piece at Jacobin, basically arguing that, you know, so much of the Kavanaugh discussion over the past couple of days has focused rightfully on, I think, the fate of Roe versus Wade has been uh, a major point of contention when discussing him, and that that's really amplified by, you know, these sexual assault allegations, that there is this abject horror that the fate of uh, abortion rights in this country could be settled by a slim majority of people, two of whom are very credibly accused committers of sexual assault. But I also wanted to expand that discussion a bit to include some of Brett Kavanaugh's background as uh, a member of the Federalist Society, as you mentioned, which is a uh, basically a network of very, very conservative legal theorists, lawyers. Um, they have chapters at law schools. Um, and that they're really groomed from them within this network where, you know, they're typically offered advantageous uh, positions um, with different judges, that their work is boosted uh, by other conservatives. So it's sort of this hiring network that's been backed ever since by um, the Koch Foundation, definitely donates a lot to it. I can't remember the others off the top of my head, but it's a dark money-backed pipeline for super conservative judges uh, in every court in the United States. So it's increasingly influential and in that, you know, you see that with Kavanaugh. 
And it's actually, you know, Trump bragged about he would present a list of nominees every chance he got it, and he got it from the Federalist Society. Kavanaugh was Mm -hmm. not at the top of their list. Everybody kind of, you know, speculates or just knows that Trump chose Kavanaugh because he has this view about the imperial president, that the president essentially stands above the law, and that looms very menacingly over Trump because of the Mueller investigation. But, you know, you just mentioned uh, that Roe v. Wade is uh, maybe on the chopping block, marriage equality, equality as well, and that he also, you know, would kill the Affordable Care Act. And, of course, we know that as a lower court judge, one of his most obscene rulings was denying a 17-year-old detained asylum seeker an abortion, and that he did that, you know, knowing that in the end, I suppose that she would get it, but delaying, hoping to delay it to the point where she couldn't. And, of course, that is very ominous for women everywhere. So, and the Federalist Society, just because you said it's a network, um, they're not elected, but they seem to be in the kind of powerful position to determine so much about, you know, what happens in the society. And we are seeing a gigantic backlash, and we're seeing, you know, women outraged and also in grief, I think, over over what we've watched uh, this past week. So what else uh, did did uh, Judge Kavanaugh do that came out of, you know, his time before the or in the Federalist Society before that we should be worried about? Yeah, you know, I think that I think that more broadly, the rise of the Federalist Society mirrors the rise of, you know, just a massive influx of donor money in policy and thought shaping, for lack of a better term. I mean, I think that when people talk about money in politics, often that conversation is narrowed into political donations to candidates. And that's obviously part of it. Uh, but there's also been uh, a very explicit effort in recent years to uh, shape thought and discourse with donations to things like the Federalist Society, but also things like, um, you know, different institutes at uh, colleges to sort of create a political situation wherein your preferred legislation is likely to get passed. Uh, And in the Federalist Society's case, um, they're very interested in uh, protecting uh, the interests of the ruling class and protecting property and, you know, ruling with the bosses on a number of uh, labor disputes, um, things of that nature. So when people talk about Kavanaugh as being very pro-business, I think that's something that, you know, we need to draw out and really analyze through a feminist lens, uh, because I don't think that those two things are connected as often as they should be. And some of the things that the Federalists oppose, because they, you know, you just uh, listed a whole host of them, and you also say in your article things like Medicaid expansion. What is mm-hmm. the what is the view that the Federalists have about the proper role of government? I mean, I think that they, they would argue that it should be very, very small and limited, and that one of its primary objectives should be the protection and fortification of property rights. And that, right, and that the role of, for example, you know, the, the state in providing for health and welfare of the population, they see it as the role of the individual. But as you just mentioned, Natalie, that, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of unions and the ability of workers to collectively bargain for a fair share of the wealth that they produce, uh, that's not okay with them as well. So it just, you know, is assumed that they're all on their own. You know, the yo-yo, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it's, if you can't make it, well, you know, tough, tough luck, right? 
Okay, so this is a, just a peculiar thing. It's always been astonishing to me that uh, conservatives in the United States do not take the kind of Burkean uh, role of uh, that the society is an organic whole and that it's a you know blotch on society if you've got all these people you know living in squalor in the streets essentially. And Europeans who come to the United States remark on that, even though now their societies are looking more and more like that, but that they have a social welfare protections to at least you know, keep uh, rebellion in check. That doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to be part of the equation here. And I wondered, you know, what your thoughts are on that in terms of not just the judges, but the entire Republican Party at this point. And and let's say it, a lot of the Democrats as well. Well, you know, it's funny when you when you say um, they don't have any measures to put rebellion in check. I mean, I, I think that that's the criminal legal system. I think that one reason that you see such massive disparities in uh, levels of policing and incarceration in the United States versus some of the European welfare states or social democracies. I think that part of that is that that, you know, I mean, if you are going to impose extreme suffering and extreme inequality on people, I think that that's where a heck of a lot of the crime comes from and that they respond to that by uh, really cracking down on that crime as opposed to trying to structurally eliminate it. Uh, or at least eliminate the uh, worst excesses of oligarchic choices the way that they might in Europe. Um, so I think that that's, you know, a big part of the difference. But, yeah, I mean, I think that the fact that they are out to protect ruling class interests, the interests of the rich, and prioritize the needs of property holders over everyone else, I mean, that, that can't not spark calamity. And did you see in the hearings either on the 27th or the 28th in the rush to vote, but then, you know, that sort of pause with Jeff Flake, who was, you know, stopped Mm -hmm. in an elevator and that's gone uh, viral everywhere where women confronted him and he wouldn't look them in the eye and they said, look us in the eye. And he was clearly very uncomfortable. He managed to get out of the committee, even though they voted to go forward, that there would be a week-long FBI investigation. You know, he Mm -hmm. sort of intimated that he would not vote for Kavanaugh unless that happened. He didn't say that he wouldn't vote for him. But they did win this one week. You mentioned at the outset, I think, that there were more cases and they and more could even come forward. But after the testimony, it was very clear that uh, Debbie Ramirez and Julie uh, Swetnicki, I think her name is, they're just collateral, I guess, in a sense. So and at the same time, we're seeing people demanding, you know, women t- want to go to the streets. I've seen calls on social media mm-hmm. for general strike. And it seems like, a, you know, the kind of moment of anger that we saw after Trump's election. So I just want to get your take on, let's say, what happened after the day of hearings and in the delay and then in terms of what's likely to happen in the street mobilization. Yeah, I mean, I think that the week delay is better than nothing, but it still feels very much to me like this is likely to be a yes with the performative due to, you know, I mean, uh, the FBI probe is unlikely to unearth proof in the way that, uh, you know, Republicans, who aren't even doing this in good faith anyway, I think would right. actually want to see to vote down. So I think that they're probably going to 
use the FBI probe and the week as a way to demonstrate having done due diligence. I, I hope I'm wrong. I think he's going to be confirmed. Um, uh, but I guess that after that, I, I think that, you know, in the same way that Trump turned a lot of people into reluctant accelerationists, mm-hmm. uh, I think that that's going to happen with Kavanaugh. I do think that there is, you know, people people making the best out of a horrific situation is something that I've found heartening over the past uh, two years, that I think that uh, a lot of people are really becoming more politicized and are committed to change. I think it's early to see what that means. We've certainly seen a rise in uh, political engagement in terms of, you know, the rising membership of groups like the Democratic Socialists of America. I feel like I've talked to more people who have been involved in, you know, protests, demonstrations, panels, town halls that had never done those things previously before 2016. And so all of those things are heartening. I hope that we're able to channel that into, uh, you know, actual games, uh, an actual movement. Um, I think that we're starting to see some of those things. And I I hope it keeps going. Just to go back for a second, because you've laid out very well the sort of aims of the Federalist Society and their undemocratic uh, kind of hold on really crucial appointments here in the United States. But on the other hand, Kavanaugh also comes from, you know, the other side of the very conservative movement that, you know, was involved in the impeachment of Clinton and the, you know, the Starr investigation. And David Brock is written a piece to expose his lies in a way because he knew him back in that period. And I wondered if you saw a connection between, you know, the effort to impeach the the Democrats and uh, to dominate the Republican Party with also, you know, what the Federalist Society is doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that one very obvious conclusion one could draw from this is to see to say that the you know, the far right has had a pretty consistent project for a long time. Uh, I don't think that, you know, Republicans over the past couple of years are anomalous and the ones from the very recent past were, you know, beacons of goodness and civility the way that I think some people have tried to tout. I think that uh, this has been who they are for a long time. I think that, you know, the more recent difference is that there has been uh, a very conscious outpouring of money into uh, a lot of these like policy and legal shaping organizations, Citizens United, I think, uh, allowed people out for oligarchic interests to have uh, an even greater upper hand than they did before. Uh, I think, you know, the decline of the Democratic Party and its uh, struggle to appeal to voters in recent years, the decline of unions, I think that that's kind of uh, more of an explanation as to why it seems like the Republicans are suddenly so horrible. Uh, I think that their power is more unchecked than it has been in recent past, but I don't think that these are different people, and I don't think they want different things than they have for a couple decades now. Well, we're just about out of time. I just wanted to end, Natalie, sure, with the last sentence you have in your very, very good article that appeared on Jacobin online, and it's uh, Kavanaugh Hates Women, but you said it's jarring, of course, to watch this attempt to ram through the lifetime appointment of a probable sex criminal to the highest court, and then you go on to say protecting 
ruling class interests and widespread precarity requires an inverted semblance of justice. It's victim-blaming and it's anti-feminist, no matter how many girls' basketball teams you coach in your free time. What a great way to end a piece. And Thank you. Uh, thank you. And I hope that, you know, your remarks about the mobilizing that's going on are picked up and amplified. And I want to thank you for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much, Susie. I appreciate it. Thanks. And Natalie Schur is a TV producer and writer. She has a great article in Jacobin Online, but she writes everywhere, Atlantic Slate, Pacific Standard, and she's head of research for Adam Ruins Everything on True TV. I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're continuing our coverage of the Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination hearings, votes, and everything surrounding it. And I'm really pleased to have Alyssa Court back with us. She's the editor-in-chief of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and author most recently of Squeezed, which is an award-winning book that's subtitled Why Our Families Can't Afford America. It's published by Echo Harper Collins. And it has been widely heralded. But Alyssa also writes the outclassed column in The Guardian and has a recent piece this week called Me Too's Hidden Activists, Working Class Women. But really what we're going to talk about today is the continuing, let's call it outrage, grief and reaction to the hearings and then the move to confirm and then the delay that has been this proceeding of the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And welcome to Jacobin Radio, Alyssa Court. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Susie. I'm so glad. And I know that we're all angry and we're hoping that, you know, a lot of women hit the streets. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit just in the beginning about your first your takeaway from first the hearing, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's incredibly compelling testimony, and then the sort of what uh, entitled rant, bullying, crying, uh, you know, and anger of Brett Kavanaugh and the way that the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee uh, were not willing to look into at all uh, the other allegations coming forward. It seems that Debbie Ramirez and Julie Swetnick are swept aside. Some are saying that, you know, the anger against Christine Blasey Ford is because she is a class traitor. That's an article that you, you and I both know. And that uh, she comes from them, whereas both Debbie Ramirez and uh, Julie Swetnick are outsiders. That's a lot for me to just say at the outset, but let's get your impression and then your takeaway. I watched almost all of it. I, I was sobbing on the couch along with a lot of people, people in planes, people uh, just hearing her testimony, um, the vulnerability, the contained vulnerability of her presence and her casual intellectualism where she's teaching people a lesson and neuroscience and uh, trauma psychology on the side, you know, on top of explaining so elegantly how memory operates, her own experience and her own pain and what happened to her. And then his, his raging uh, response, which really reminds anyone who's been a victim of any kind of domestic abuse or assault, this, can, this is one of the behaviors that can emerge, right? I'm not saying he's a batterer, but where you, people start to cry, uh, beg forgiveness, or, or not in his case, right? kind of angry, self-pitying tears, which were astonishing. I thought it would just be kind of a level response where he just refuted things, but the, the male hysteria was pretty intense, too. 
And what I loved about the Erin uh, Cameron piece from New York Magazine, I guess, it's yeah. a cut or New York Magazine proper, was just the class trader point. I think part of why she was so effective, part of potentially why even Jeff Flake is, you know, delaying this for a week, um, the, delaying the vote, was because she was part of them. She was one of them. She uh, had gone to Holton Arms. She'd gone to those schools. She'd gone to those parties, Beach Week. You know, who has a calendar with two weeks Beach Week where you rent it by yourself? I was thinking about this, like, my parents barely took two week vacations by themselves. You know, forget about, you know, a kid renting in their own house. Yeah, and um, this exactly. is an incredible privilege. And somebody said about Julie Swetnick, oh, it couldn't have been true because she went to a public school. <laughs> and uh, so there's, there's so much class in embedded into a lot of what's going on here, gender and class and violence, obviously, but Juliet Swetnick and uh, Debbie, Debbie Ramirez. Ramirez were in her case, what, Jewish middle middle class and I, I'm not even sure, you know, county slash person of color slash working class, you know, aspiring middle class. That was Debbie Ramirez's background. Yeah. And so I, I think they were, they have been a little bit excluded from this case because of that and what when people are saying what a great witness christine blazy ford is, is they're not just saying it because of her amazing presence but because she was from this world and the, the article that i wrote before all this really came down was about uh working class women who have now joined me too and it's been really remarkable i mean all this of course has been overshadowed but by what's going on but uh, with the hearings and so forth, but last Tuesday, McDonald workers in 10 U.S. cities walked off the job to protest sexual harassment. It's unprecedented. Uh, a week earlier, female janitors in California marched 100 miles from San Francisco to Sacramento. And all of it's buried these days because there's so much going on, you know, at the upper echelons of both government and you know and society. But yes, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, and and the thing is, I think. One of the reasons that we're so upset and angry is Kavanaugh does not see most women. He may see the Amy Chua, the Yale law professor who's got him clerks. He may see the female clerks he works with when he goes through the litany of this, and Amy Chua's daughter. I don't know. There's this kind of um, class of women he may see, and maybe he even saw Christine Blasey Ford, but he doesn't see Debbie Ramirez, and he doesn't see these women um, at McDonald's who are working for a corporation that he would most definitely given his history, his relationship with labor, side with the corporate, corporate interests in that, in that sense. And he doesn't see the women who are struggling to afford abortions or ju- just to plan their families. He doesn't see those women either. Right. And, and that, go ahead. You know, this is a, that's, the, that's the bigger abusive pattern. And I think the other thing, too, is that just to talk about his sense of entitlement and rage, that he's entitled to be a Supreme Court justice. Nothing was going to get in the way of his destiny, not, you know, anything that he had done when he worked in the Ken Starr investigation, uh, you know, obsessed with uh, the Clintons and Bill Clinton's sexual conduct, but at the same time, you know, being as hypocritical as uh, could be given his own, or, you know, any of the emails that did not come out uh, that the uh, Senate Judiciary withheld, uh, some of them leaked out, but not enough of them uh, during his time under George Bush that were concealed by executive privilege, but that will show, you know, his support for the imperial presidency and even things like torture. So all of that, you know, and, and I think you're absolutely right, Alyssa Court, to say that when he came out there, he saw no women. He only saw himself and how he was going to be possibly cheated of this thing that he does, that was his to have. 
and you were right as well. I think women, not just in the U.S., but all over the world, were riveted, angry. And I'm hoping to see massive demonstrations now on this. And, and now there's a week. And we, nobody knows what's really going to happen this week and what the FBI investigation is going to yield. But what do you think or what do you hope for in this week that, you know, of time and respite and perhaps others coming forward? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think we are all hoping that he'll be stopped and that he won't get the thing he thinks he deserves, which is also, I have to say this whole thing like where he, I worked my tail off at, to get into Yale, to stay in Yale and to graduate from the law school. Scholarship has nothing to do with whether someone's abusive or not. And on top of it, I'm sure Debbie Ramirez was working a hell of a lot harder than he was. <laughs> I, yeah. I was, you know. I mean, if you came from anything but a privileged background to exactly. stay, get into or stay in an Ivy League school in that period, you worked really hard in school. Right. And so this idea that that was enough. Anyway, that was just a personal bugbear of mine that, that really bothered me. But, um, yeah, I'm hoping that he obviously gets stopped, that more women come forward. I'm finding this uh, to be a brilliant moment in terms of, you know, ordinary people uh, able to stand up for themselves and articulate things that are often hidden for 60, 70 years, some elderly people coming out saying that this has happened to them. Um, and then in the meanwhile, yeah, we're organizing, we're, we're marching, we're writing, we're investigative reporters um, have done a great job of finding documents. Uh, uh, people have found, you know, obviously the yearbooks and the uh, Mark Judge's memoirs, which are, uh, I've, I've read one of, some of one of them, and he's definitely, uh, it is a memoir, it is not a novel. Um, I think we can find a lot more material, and then I'm sure there'll be others other people who have other things to say, like Mark Judge's ex-girlfriend, who remarked that he had told stories about pulling train, whatever that group rape, um, there'll be people coming out and, and telling the truth. And this is uh, an amazing moment for that, if nothing else. Well, and I think that this is all, you know, really important and because what you're also saying, Alyssa Court, is that, you know, he lied in, in front of the committee and seemed to get away with it. And it seems that he still might get away with it. There's lies about, you know, the parties. And I really am with you on this. When I was going through school and grad school, I didn't have time to go to parties like that, nor would I have ever wanted to either. But it just, it's really quite extraordinary that he, you know, should think that he was entitled in all of those ways. Okay, that being said, Christine Blasey Ford was very compelling, and people identified, you know, with what she had gone through. And this is a kind of moment. It's very different, I think, from when Anita Hill came forward. Uh, she, you know, was a trailblazer in exposing it. And now here we are, you know, like a year on, isn't it, from the Me Too movement, and that this that they could choose this guy and that they're trying to ram it through just seems to go in the face of history. And it seems to me the Republicans don't normally commit suicide, but this is suicidal given the elections coming up. And what do you think? Yeah, and I also think that they, it's not happenstance. I think it's some sort of reaction formation. I don't think they just are ramming it through. I think that they, they're threatened and they're angry and um, they feel like their own masculinity and their years of behavior. I mean, who knows? Like, who knows what went into deciding, in addition to whatever, Kavanaugh's very generous readings about uh, whether to uh, to hold people like President Trump uh, culpable, right? I mean, he, that, this is part of it. That's why they're pushing him through. It doesn't have to do with his 
incredible like history as a litigator or a scholar. It has to do with how how generously he looks upon Trump in part. But then, you know, I think they also are probably sympathetic with some of his bad behavior. This is something that this is a common uh, was a common milestone for these kind of privileged guys and. They, they don't want that, the mirror held up to that, that history, you know? I was going to ask what you're going to write about this moment. I mean, because it's, only, it's still very, very raw, but there's a lot of emotion out there. And you're in New York City where you're you know, able to be in the streets and subways and kind of gauge people's reaction. It's a little harder in Los Angeles because we're all in our cars. Are you expecting to see something from this? I mean, I'm very hopeful. And I mean, I had the hearings on on my radio, you know, on my uh, phone because I had to do something and I was wandering around with it and I saw other people were like watching it on their on their phones and subway and obviously people stayed home. People were had it, the screens on at work. Mm-hmm. When these are mostly women that I've been talking to about this and, you know, people are calling each other, talking about their, their trauma histories. I mean, it's really, just on a personal level, it's been very powerful for me to see but I also think, you know, we can try to marshal this anger and reach the so-called suburban women who may be wondering who they're going to vote for in the midterms and say, yeah, this is a party that's supporting this, that has supported a guy who, if he's not guilty or of the, doing this in the past, he has very little guilt about anything, you know, and is utterly uh, raging, and this is who we want to represent us in the court, you know. But th- let's go back to what you've been writing about and what you're actually involved in, the hardship economic, uh, economic Hardship Reporting Project and your book and about how hard it is to make it for the middle class, but then about the working class women, uh, McDonald's and other workers, janitors in Los Angeles that have been out in the last week. And you end your piece by saying the Me Too movement is an actual, it's a class issue, and it's, a, and it's part of the labor movement in a way. And, and I just was hoping to go back to that and put it into perspective in the way that you've seen the response to the spectacle of the last several days. Well, yeah, I mean, so this article I wrote, I was just saying, we need to think of Me Too as a labor movement. Right now, it's still, in certain ways, uh, celebrity-dominated, at least those are the optics. A lot of the really important work that people like Rowan and Farrow have been doing is, is concentrated on you know, media titans and film producers. And what I was arguing in that piece was that we need to start, you know, looking at blue-collar wrongdoers and at the women they've hurt. This is most, more of the country than less moon death, right, CBS head predator. And one thing that we need to do for that is we need to start kind of collecting stories. We need to create safe spaces, more safe spaces for women. We need to start thinking about what makes different professions more vulnerable to sexual harassment, how the experience of a female tech worker in um, Palo Alto who's being harassed is different from that of a, a waitress or a McDonald's worker, and what are the soft spots in these professions, that points of vulnerability, times when women are alone, times when uh, women are contingent workers and so their hours can be manipulated, uh, and uh, they have men who have too much power over them because they're freelance. I just think there's there's a world of ways in which Me Too is a labor movement that we still need to be exploring and fighting. I mean, I think that's related to Kavanaugh, but it's a different issue. I mean, it's related to Kavanaugh just in the sense that he's so pro-business that I don't know if 
what kind of protections we're going to see for these workers if he indeed becomes a justice. I was just going to say it is very much related to him because as a judge, he has worked against all the issues that women and families need, not just from the Affordable Care Act, but Roe v. Wade, expansion of Medicaid, labor unions. He's uh, on the other side on all of these issues. I want to invite you back after you've written your next column or columns on this. And thank you for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much, Susie. Thank you. And Alyssa Court is editor-in-chief of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Go out and get her most most recent book called Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, and look for her columns in The Guardian. Thanks so much for joining us, Liz. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.